You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. So I want to start with, uh, with story. So um, we have all heard the phrase that familiarity breeds contempt, right? Um, and now it, I don't think it always breeds contempt, but it, it definitely at times causes us, familiarity causes us um, to maybe not be as grateful for things that we find so common in our daily life. And, and sometimes we joke around in, uh, in, in our culture and call those things first world problems when we lack those things that we take so for granted, right? We become familiar with things and we even become lax uh, towards them. But also, um, there are times when we are just unaware or ignorant of what is before us. And, and I recently read a story where uh, there was two men in Washington, D.C., walking towards an event on a rainy day. And so there was these two men walking down the sidewalk, and one of the men had an umbrella. And so he invited the other man, the stranger, under his umbrella as they walked towards the same event, which this event was a banquet to celebrate a very distinguished general. And so as this stranger that uh, got under this umbrella began walking with this, uh, this man, he began to criticize the general and, and talk about how overrated this general was, not knowing that the man holding the umbrella was the general himself. He was unaware and he was ignorant of whom he was dealing with, right? And in a similar way, we as Christians tend to forget what sort of God we're dealing with. And we'll find David and the people of Israel did the same in this chapter. We forget, brothers and sisters, that there is a heat to his holiness. We forget that there is fire in his eyes. And though we need not be utterly terrified of God if we are in Christ, it doesn't hurt to have some fear of God put in us by these kinds of chapters in Scripture. So the question I want us to ask ourselves as we dive in, and the question I'll pose to, to all of us here is that, how should we as sinners approach such a holy God who is a consuming fire, but also an infinite well of grace? How should we as sinners approach God's presence, knowing He is a consuming fire, as well as an infinite well of grace. If we're honest, all of us in this room this morning struggle with swinging to one side of the pendulum of God's holiness. We may be so consumed with God's holiness, not gazing enough upon the grace and the mercy and the love found in Jesus that we walk in constant condemnation and fear and guilt and shame. Well, at the same time, some of us may, may swing over to the other side of the pendulum and think so much upon God's grace and forgiveness in Jesus that we, like David, much like this man walking with the general, uh, disregard or are ignorant of the fact that we are before a holy God. So we, we look at our sin flippantly. And I often call this greasy grace, an approach of greasy grace when we approach our sin 
with really no remorse. Because, hey, there's grace. Grace covers that anyway, right? And here at Sojourn, this is why we walk through a liturgy every Sunday, because we're reminded of God's holiness in light of our sin, then we confess our sins before God in the presence of His holiness, while after that then we are reminded of the assurance of pardon that we have in Jesus. And we worship in response to that forgiveness and that grace that's offered to us through Jesus. And as we walk through this story of David's attempt bringing, uh, to bring the ark back into Jerusalem, my hope this morning is that we'll find an encouraging answer in this chapter to this question. How should we approach God's presence? But before we go directly into this chapter, let me give us some, some context of where we find ourselves in the significance of this chapter. So back in 1 Samuel chapter 6, we find the first attempt of, uh, of uh, the people of Israel uh, to bring the ark back into Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant had been with the Philistines that had taken it from the people of Israel, but God began to send plagues upon the Philistines, so much so that, that they feared and dreaded this God of Israel, and so they wanted to do away with the Ark. So they brought it back and, and told the Israelites, take it, we don't want it. And so they did something. They, they went to their own prophets, the Philistines, and asked them, how should we transport this ark? And they said, well, you create this, this cart, and, you, and, you, and you, you push it through this cart. And, and so they, they had their own way of transporting the ark of God's presence. And now, for the people of Israel, the ark of the covenant was where God's presence dwelt among them. For Israel, uh, this ark of the covenant represented God's revelation, so the Ten Commandments were in it. It represented God's reconciliation. Every day on the Day of Atonement, blood was sprinkled, and they were reminded that they needed atonement for their sins. And God's rulership, the ark, was known as God's footstool. So God ruled His people. His presence was with them as represented through the ark. So as as they brought this, this ark back, or attempted to bring this ark back to, to, to Jerusalem, they, they did so in the same method that the Philistines were doing. And while God didn't judge the Philistines for their ignorance of the law, He did hold His people accountable to the regulations on how to transport the ark of God's holy presence. And many were struck dead in 1 Samuel 6, and they were terrified. So they, they sent the ark away. So the, the ark was away from Jerusalem for about a century until David ascends to the throne and is crowned and anointed king. And then David once again tries to bring this ark back to the people of Israel. Now let me read verses 1 through 9 as we see kind of his first attempt at bringing the ark back and how he failed. It says, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called 
by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And, and Uzzah and Ohio, sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And, and Ohio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. Now note David's response. David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And then David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So if we read, if we, if we, we examine this, this story, we see here that Israel showed irreverence to God's holy presence. Showed irreverence to this ark of the covenant by not following God's laws on transporting the ark. See, the law had already prescribed to the people of Israel how to transport the ark. It, it was to be covered. It was to be carried on their shoulders and not pushed on a cart. And we read between the lines in this portion of this chapter, we find clues given before Uzzah is judged that not only were things not looking good for them as they were um, disobeying the law in, on how to transport the ark, but that God's act of striking Uzzah wasn't off the cuff or a knee-jerk reaction that God had without thinking. God didn't respond out of a knee-jerk reaction when he struck Uzzah. The first clue is the obvious one. They were disobeying God's law. But the second is as they pushed the cart, they go over a, a threshing floor at Nacon. And a threshing floor in Scripture is seen, uh, is seen to always be tied to God's judgment. So we see that as they disobeyed the law, there's this clue of a foreshadowing, if you will. And shortly after that, the cart stumbles. Uzzah reaches to, to, to prevent the ark from falling to the ground as if God needed any help from Uzzah. And he's struck dead. God's holy presence is disregarded and Uzzah pays the price for that. So, so why is this important for us? Why is this important for us today? This story of Uzzah being struck dead, touching the ark. We don't have an ark anymore. How, does that, uh, how is that important for us? Well, I mentioned it, mentioned it a bit earlier. This is very important for us because we still struggle to disregard God's holiness in our life as Christians. And as I stated already, we tend to swing between these two extremes of either disregardance of God's holiness or being so consumed with God's holiness in light of our sin without looking to grace. And in David's first attempt to bring the ark back, this is what he did. He disregarded God's holy regulations, yet him and his people praised in the streets on their way back. So what does this tell us? It tells us that they were emotionally expressing worship but it wasn't centered on 
God's scripture. It wasn't centered on God's law. God would not have any of that, and Uzzah's death was proof. David, I believe, then swung to the other side of the pendulum right after that in verses 9 through 12. It says, David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Verse 10, so David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite, and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. So after Uzzah is struck dead, David's initial response is anger towards God. The the audacity to be angry at God for judging rightly. But then right after that, he realizes, wait a minute. This this is a holy God that we're dealing with here. This is the God of Israel, the Lord of hosts. And And he feared, rightly so. He should have feared. But yet his fear, instead of drawing him to God in repentance, drew him away. And he said, how can I bring the ark back? And for three months, the ark was away at the house of Obed-Edom until he finally hears that because of the ark, the house of Obed-Edom was being blessed. And so as if being provoked to jealousy is like, well, we got to go back then. We got to go and bring this ark back to our city. But David became paralyzed by fear at the outset, which caused him to send off this ark to the house, essentially the house of a Gentile specifically a Gittite. And so, what can we learn from this? Well, uh, though we do live in an age of the gospel, having the Messiah fully revealed to us, brothers and sisters, we, we must not presume upon God's grace and think that we can somehow dishonor, disregard, or show irreverence to God's holiness. Though he has revealed himself gradually over history, yet his character remains the same. Yes, we have an unending well of grace. and I couldn't stand up here if it wasn't for that grace. Yes, we are in Jesus and there is no more wrath, judgment, and condemnation for you if you are in Christ. Yes to all of those things, but woe to us if we think that that's an excuse to be flippant about God's holiness, whether it be in our daily lives throughout the week or on a Sunday morning. Jesus doesn't give us a path to purposely walk down a path of foolishness because, hey, His grace covers me anyway, right? I would submit to you that if, if that is your mentality or you, you run to that mentality Often, you either have a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel of grace, or or you may not even be a Christian. And on the flip side, we, we also aren't called at the same time to be paralyzed by fear, right? To be paralyzed by dread. Yes, we're called 
to fear God, to be in awe of Him, to revere His holiness. But that fear, that holiness, should cause us to run to Him instead of running from Him. And we catch David in this chapter functioning out of both of these. But David was taught a lesson here in this story. His initial response of anger showed his irreverence and then his fear and fleeing from the ark of God's presence showed his lack of remembrance of God's mercy in his life. So God taught him that his holiness must be held in highest regard, that his law is not to be meddled with, while at the same time reminding him that his mercy is ever-present for him, especially in light of his own sin. And it was with this heart posture um, that he attempts to bring the ark back a second time. And this time, he would follow every regulation, every instruction from God's law on how to bring and transport the ark of the covenant back to Jerusalem, and he succeeds. This is where I believe David gives us a great example of worship before God's presence, a a kind of worship that's acceptable in his sight. And I found here two essential ingredients to his true worship before God. His worship, number one, was instructed by the Word of God. So it was Word-based, founded upon the law of God, and his worship engaged his whole being. It engaged, yes, his emotions as well. And I know some of us may hear emotions and um, maybe come from a a church background where it was looked down upon to engage your emotions in worship. We find here that we can't have one or the other. Our worship must be theologically founded, but also must engage our whole being. Or else we become someone sitting in an ivory tower reciting dead theology. Or we become someone who, much like David and the people of Israel in their first attempt to bring the ark back, thinking that they're praising and worshiping God in the streets while they're in direct disobedience to the Scriptures. So how can we we know that this was his heart posture? Well, we see it. And we catch a glimpse of it when he responds to Michael, when when, when she despised David for his leaping and his dancing in public during the second attempt to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. David was abandoned in dance and worship before the Lord's presence. And when Michal confronted him, saying, "You essentially she's saying, you you looked like a fool. Why should the king be dancing and leaping the way you did. You dishonored yourself and you dishonored the position of the king of Israel. I find it ironic that she was Saul's daughter, the one who truly dishonored the position of the king of Israel. And David responds to Michael saying, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel. Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. 
I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes, but by my female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. So Michael was more concerned with how, how David was perceived by outsiders, by the people, as he danced in a way that she thought was dishonorable. But you see, we find here in David that God had already humbled him to the lowest degree, having reminded him how he ought to bring the Ark of the Covenant back, how he ought to interact with God's holy presence. And the fact that he was entering into the city with the Ark, God allowing him to succeed in bringing the Ark back, humbled and floored David with mercy and grace. Not only that, though, we find here that as he's leaping and dancing, he's also remembering the fact that God has elevated him from a shepherd, a stinky shepherd kid, to the king of Israel, and that God chose him even over Michael's father, Saul. David was overwhelmed by the grace and the mercy that he had received from the God of Israel, while at the same time being in awe and reverence of his holiness. This is why I believe we can confidently say that true worship, as I stated already, is both theological and emotional. If you have one without the other, you end up getting either stale recitation or ecstatic, foundationless emotionalism. This is how we can approach our most holy and gracious God. But as we were reminded through David's first attempt, the big problem to that is that we are, in fact, sinners, that we are wayward, that we are prone to go astray. So what allows us to approach the Holy One? What allowed David and Israel to be in the vicinity of God's most holy presence without themselves being struck dead as well like Uzzah? And we find the answer to these questions when we examine the Ark of the Covenant more closely. In God dealing with David, we see this example of true worship as, as he leaped and danced before the Ark of God's presence. But, but today, our dealings are not with an Ark, right? As I stated in the beginning, the Ark for Israel represented three things. God's revelation, God's reconciliation, and His rulership. These three things function, or the, the, the position or the function that carries these out is a prophet for revelation, a priest for reconciliation, and a king for rulership. See, where uh, the ark signified all of these things, we find their fulfillment in Christ. Where, where the ark signifies God's revelation, so Christ is our prophet who reveals to us by His Word and Spirit the will of God for our salvation. Where the ark signifies God's reconciliation, so Christ is our priest who brought His own blood into the sanctuary. Where the ark signifies God's footstool, proclaiming His rulership, so Christ is our King, subduing us to Himself and ruling and defending us. 
and in restraining and conquering our enemies and his enemies. So it should be no surprise that this, this Old Testament piece of furniture that so fully speaks of God should also fully point to Christ. For we're reminded in the New Testament by Paul that in Christ dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. How can we keep God's presence central in our life? The, the answer is simple, and the answer will always be we turn our eyes upon Jesus. We have in Jesus the fulfillment of the shadows that this ark casted over the future. That anyone within the people of Israel could even come close to the ark was already an immense mercy, for no one could stand to be near God's presence and yet live. But because the ark was representative of God's revelation, reconciliation, and rulership, the very thing that struck fear in the hearts of Israel was also the very same thing that represented their reconciliation and atonement. So while they approached the ark with fear and trembling, knowing that God is a consuming fire, yet they looked to the ark and remembered that it was, as they looked at or as they were reminded of the Ten Commandments, the Day of Atonement, and the fact that the ark is God's footstool, that the very thing that could potentially kill them is also the very thing that brings them close to a holy God. This story is like a, a, a microcosm of the greater redemptive story that would play out many years after David brought the ark back to Jerusalem. Let me remind us that God promised David that his throne would be eternal, established forever, that through his lineage would come a king that would rule for all of eternity. The Messiah would bring God's people near to God's presence for good. So it's no mere coincidence that right after David is anointed king, he endeavors to bring God's presence back to God's people foreshadowing when Jesus, the son of David, would essentially be the ark in the flesh. Jesus, the fullness of the Godhead, dwelling in bodily form, walking, talking the streets that we walked, coming to earth as a man, dwelling among us to be our prophet, our priest, and our king to reveal to us the Father's plan of redemption for us, to reconcile us through His life, death, and resurrection, and to be our King and our Lord. It should come as no surprise in that while Jesus was on earth, He said that the Father was seeking worshipers to worship Him in spirit and in truth. So then as we approach God through Jesus, in Him, our lack of reverence to God's holiness can be forgiven. And our fear that draws us away from Him, that pushes us to guilt and shame, can be healed. We can now approach the throne of grace 
as we read in Hebrews, with boldness, while at the same time with awe, reverence, and wonder as we, as we meditate on the splendor of His holiness. But more than that, we're reminded by Paul in the New Testament that we now have this treasure, this presence of God dwelling within us by the Spirit. So this means, brothers and sisters, wherever we go, no matter where we go, God's presence is in us and with us. We are always before the face of God. If you are in Christ, no matter where you go, you are always before the presence of God. And Jesus, as your high priest, is ever interceding for you. So if through Jesus, by the Spirit, we have God's presence with us at all times, how does that affect how we live on a daily basis, on a weekly basis? How, how does that affect how we live tomorrow morning? Well, it means that we take our sin very seriously, right? If everything that we do, everywhere we go, we do it before the face of God. It means that we, we seek to kill our sin. We seek to confess our sin that we may be healed and we seek to grow in our hatred against this sin that put Christ on the cross. And it means we also take God's empowering grace seriously. And when we do sin, we come before the throne with boldness instead of retreating and hiding in fear, knowing that Christ has done away with every last drop of wrath that was reserved for us. Drinking the cup of wrath, taking upon Himself the punishment that we deserve in its fullness. Reminded of what 1 John 2, 1 and 2 says. It says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This means we can be honest with our struggles in community. It means you can be honest with brothers and sisters in your parish. We can go to our brothers and sisters when struggling and find in each other a reminder of this great gospel to convict and encourage us as we grow in becoming more like Christ. This also means you can open up and be honest when your heart is irreverent towards God's holiness. There's no shame in confessing that. We can confess these things knowing that God's presence will never leave us if you are in Christ. God has promised to His children to always be with them, to guide them, and to grow them in becoming more like Christ. We have God's promise that as we enter His throne room with both reverence for His holiness and gratitude for His grace, we'll find only acceptance. We'll find only healing. There is only mercy now for you if you're a believer. So how, how shall we approach God's presence knowing He's a consuming fire and an infinite well of grace? We look to Jesus while we were the foolish man under that umbrella, unaware of who we're dealing with at times. 
in Christ as He holds that umbrella of righteousness and grace over us, corrects us while embracing us as His children, grows us in reverence to His holiness and gratitude for His grace. Let's pray. Father, we admit that we oftentimes, whether in word, in thought, or in deed, um, stray away from giving you the glory, the honor, the reverence you deserve. And at times, Father, we, we stay stuck wallowing in our own sin and allow condemnation, guilt, and shame to overcome us. We need your Spirit, Lord, to um, produce in us, Father, a a, a, an awe and a reverence to the splendor of your holiness, while at the same time, Lord, a deep gratitude for your grace that causes us to worship you and become even more contemptible like David did for the sake of your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.